What can we learn from paying close attention to the environments around us? And what role can folklore play in teaching us the art of looking up close? If you, like me, are constantly asking that question, then boy am I excited to introduce you to today's guest, Daisy Allstone. Daisy is a folklorist, cryptozoologist, and legend scholar, eco-philosopher, mycologist, and collective joy enthusiast. The current director of Wise Folk Productions, producers of the YouTube and Twitch streaming channel Folkwise, which explores the study of tradition non-traditionally through digital content creation, public education, and direct community engagement. Daisy is also a PhD candidate at the Ohio State University Comparative Studies Department, studying community, metaphor, and how knowledge forms in everyday life and community with more than humans. They're interested in questions about community formation, systems thinking, and more than human community members' contributions to the transmission of everyday knowledge. Daisy collaborates with other folklore-related organizations on outreach and impact projects, including the Western States Folklore Society and the American Folklore Society, is the current digital storytelling editor for the Livelihoods Knowledge Exchange Network, also known as Lycan. There is so much we can learn when we learn in community, and when we broaden our ideas of what community is. This is a conversation about the importance of a field like folklore, the necessity of community relationships, the need for mutual reciprocity to the landscapes we call home, and the vision of widening our understanding of the futures that are possible. There is another world out there, if only we are willing to look for it. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I mean, oftentimes these conversations could go for hours, but I was going to say, yeah, like I, yeah, yeah. They can just keep going and going and going. So, yeah. but <laughs> so no, feel free to like... ramble. We, we love okay, a ramble. Cool. Um, cool. But... Well, you'll get, you'll get dream brain today then. <laughs> okay. Well, and speaking of actually on a ramble, I think the first question that I have for you is what is something that you're obsessed with right now? Fuck right now. Um, oh shoot. Can I say fuck? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Oh man, what am I obsessed with right now? Um, trying to think of like, um, I mean, I feel I find myself like lost in like little things all the time, but they all like, I don't know, circle back to the big picture of yourself or whatever. And it's what anybody's like micro obsessions are like. But what are your micro obsessions in general? Let's start there. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Well, okay, so I got I got a couple. I was thinking of a couple. So I just finished two different uh, specialty magazines run by a, an organization called broccoli have you ever heard of broccoli I mag have not. they have like a okay definitely look them up they're super cool um they have a uh they mainly do a quarterly issue called broccoli and it's about like cannabis culture but it's more of like a culture an arts and culture magazine that also like has a framework but the um issues that i recently just finished um I don't subscribe to them all the time. They're a little expensive, but they're worth the price. It's like $30 a magazine, but they're like high quality art prints, like coffee table style, like super high end, high end production value <laughs> magazines are really cool. So the two I just finished were Mushroom People, which was, um, they have a whole like, a Mushroom People is an acronym <laughs> that they've created. And that was filled with just like all kinds of interesting stuff um, about mushrooms and culture and folklore and people and it was really interesting and then the other one they had is called uh catnip and it's all about cats it's, it was just a special about cats um but it was so cool it was like photography about cats there were like 
essays and poems. There was a, there was a piece about folklore and cats or science fiction and cats. There was like all kinds of really cool stuff in it. So I don't know. I Broccoli magazine, like some and like Murgo magazine. I love Murgo. Heard of Murgo I, magazine? Yes. I, I love Murgo magazine. All the okay. Time. So yeah, so like I don't know. Maybe my like micro obsession right now is a deep dive into like specialty high quality production magazines um but that i don't know i've kind of always been into that because i come from like a zine culture a little bit too i make zines i've participated in like zine festivals and i just love diy culture and sort of like the high production of that you sort of like take all the artists that are doing beautiful shit and then put them into like a high quality printed thing i don't know it's like just the next level or whatever and so i've been getting into some of those lately um, i love that you bring up zines because it is something we always talk about wanting to do with good folk it's like our long-term I goal here is to zines. publish like some sort of really cool zine so i love all your recommendations and i will plus one on Murgout 100 percent. and we're going to talk more about like environmentalism and appalachia and all the things but they are doing so many cool things with oh, that i mean whatever yeah they really they super are yeah like as yeah they're just a wonderful magazine in a lot of ways um i think maybe another one i know so much deep lore of the american folklore society now because of the podcast that we do um or because of the show we do on twitch but uh zines you're reminding me so a couple years ago anna marie o'brien now by morel anna marie morel um we made a zine for afs and we were trying to do like a folklore zine that you give out like quarterly at AFS through the New Directions and Folklore section. So I have like an ancient zine on like zines and folklore and ethnography or something like that. Anyway, so there's, it has happened before and I encourage you to take the project on. It would be so cool if we could actually- I'm going to file that away for next year. You really should. should. We were like being goofy and off the cuff about it and then just didn't have the capacity. And so I I love AFS zines. I think it's fun. I'm glad that you bring up AFS because I, I have to say, so I am a folklorist, as many of our listeners will know, as is Daisy. And we, this podcast is a podcast where we interview artists of all kinds, but I think you are actually the first other folklorist. Oh, shit, really? To get on here, I was nervous. Which is super exciting to me personally. Oh, well, first of all, that is very flattering to me. <laughs> There's a lot of amazing folklorists you get on the show, so holy shit. But also, um, the I was nervous a little bit because I might be like the most city slicker version of a person you've had on your podcast because I grew up in LA. <laughs> so, like, so I was like, mm, I mean, I know I'm, in, I'm into like in- environmentalism and it kind of rural studies and stuff like that too, but I'm really into like, what does community mean? Um, and so I was like, I hope I can like speak enough to some of these things that I'll be like a useful guest for you. <laughs> oh my gosh, absolutely. And I think they all overlap. And yeah, part, totally. part of why we asked you to be on here is because of your interest in community yeah. and ecology yeah, and totally. specifically in thinking beyond kind of human connections and human relationships. And so much of what our conversations end up revolving around is connections to place. And so much of that comes from, you know, when you're in a rural space, you do often develop a deeper connection to place, but it's not limited to that. And certainly urban spaces have that kind of connection as well. So actually, I would love to have you touch on here a little bit more about what folklore is to you, how you got involved in folklore, and so much of the work that I'm always rambling on about on this podcast is my own ideas, which are really related to futurism in the field and how we you know, folklore is all about survival. So how do we make that shift from survivals into a concept that I am terming folklore futurisms, which I know many other people are doing work with. Emily Hilliard's doing a lot with visionary yeah, folklore. Sure, yeah. I love that you work with Lycan. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Lycan. Lycan. Livelihoods Lycan Knowledge is Exchange really Network. Work. Oh my God, the Livelihoods Knowledge Exchange Network. Everybody should interact with them like in any way that you can like a representative from them or like emailing them or attending a workshop or something because they do... 
a lot of amazing work in community around ecology, you know, environmental related issues. So things like um, water access or like uh, how to prepare for, you know, we were, I was just in a meeting today before this um, where we were talking about making a like emergency preparedness kit for climate crisis related disaster, but in a way that's not focusing on climate crisis, because that is a very polarizing, you know, term phrase way to talk about the environment in a lot of these areas that like and works directly in. And so, but, but also that doesn't mean you're not impacted by floods, <laughs> Ran, you know, like kind of like, or, or um, fast onset frosts. There's not a lot of information like from FEMA about how to protect your house against like overnight, like temperature drops and stuff that we're seeing more and more that happen because of uh, environmental crisis. So we are, yeah. So they just do amazing work, interact with them in any way that you can. If you're uh, in Kentucky, there's where they're, they're headquarters, but they're really like branched out, like, you know, like mycelium across the, the nation. So they're amazing. Um, it was founded by Betsy Taylor and Mary Hufford, two fantastic folklorists and civic professionals, public scholars, just doing excellent work. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We do. I do all kinds of stuff. Two people I deeply respect. And so my work is in floodwater resilience, specifically on the coast. So I'm very involved in many of these things and, and really interested in kind of the emerging field of environmental folklore and what that looks like. So I ask people or people ask me all the time about folklore and the way that I would describe it. And, and what I teach to my students and what I say on this podcast is to me, folklore is how humans prove that we exist and also how we make meaning of our lives and the world around us. And I think this is a really interesting idea to apply then to kind of more than human and non-human folklore and mm -hmm. environmental folklore. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear, I know you have many ideas about community and yeah. <laughs> humanity yeah, and yeah. all these things. So I'd love to hear you touch a little bit more on that um, and what folklore means to you or how you would describe it to someone who has no idea what this field is. Cause it is a really fun party question that I'm sure you've gotten many times. <laughs> No, the, well, the, the fun part, well, yeah, I get a lot of like, what's a folklorist because <laughs> people don't think that you can study what they think folklore is or, or that it's matters more than some kind of like superficial aesthetic. Like, oh yeah, you like fairies and wizards or whatever. Or they're like, oh, you like play banjo or something, <laughs> which is like all stereotypes about what people think are folklore. But then they realize after their first like intro folklore class or just like talking to a folklorist that it's every, it's a lot of stuff. So the way that I describe it is uh, creative communication in everyday life. So it's something that has like an aesthetic value, good or bad, doesn't have, you don't have to like the aesthetic, but it has some kind of curated creative element to it. And you are trying to communicate something to another being um and it's the stuff that happens in everyday life another definition that i really like um there's a couple that come from other wonderful scholars so toke thompson is another folklorist he's uh in the anthropology department at university of San um, of southern california at usc and he says uh folklore is non-institutional discourse the study of all of the stuff that we learn about culture that doesn't come to you through an institution like public education. You didn't learn it from your teacher that was mandated by some government like idea of what a standard is, right? For your for your classes or it's not like from that, it's more from your family or these informal interactions or like your friends or people that you connect with online that are kind of randomly just out there sharing things to each other. It's all the stuff that's like unofficial in a 
kind of everyday capacity where you're you're getting information you're taking it in it's kind of created like a meme is a creative thing it's communicating something does it matter not to a lot of people but to folklorists it matters a lot um especially when you gather lots and lots and lots of data and can find patterns and you begin to sort of like explore what you know why are we talking about these things that people seem to dismiss as not real or necessary or factual or whatever like that's the stuff that's interesting to me um uh, Lynn McNeil, another great folklorist, just uses the definition in formal traditional culture. I have her book right behind um, me. <laughs> yep. You got that book? Yep. Yep. I it's a great it book. I to my um, intro folklore fol- course. <laughs> yep. Yep. Folklore rules. It's a great, very short introduction to the field of folklore. Um, I think informal traditional culture is a good way to talk about it, too. I think people get tripped up on tradition a little bit, especially in our current political climate. <laughs> um, and I also think that people get tripped up on that meaning that it can't that it's like everything is folklore but it's also not everything is folklore it's specifically the stuff that's transmitted informally so like there's a thing a piece of culture there's a group the group that is doing something with the thing and folklorists are interested in how that thing that process of what the folk is doing what the thing is getting shared so folklorists are interested in transmission um of this cultural knowledge more than they are um the origin of it some people think that like folklorists like know the first ever cinderella story no we don't actually (laughs) um or they or they think that like um you know you can prove whether or not bigfoot actually exists and it's like all of those are interesting questions, but folklorists are asking a different question, which is why do we keep talking about this stuff in the first place? Um, why do we keep doing this this cultural pattern, whether it's having Thanksgiving and trying to work through redefining that in the context of you know indigenous genocide, or is it you know like do we keep celebrating holidays that are su- supportive of like a um, I don't know, settler colonial history or something like, you know, like, how do we kind of engage those? And why do we engage them? Why do we keep doing them? Why should we change them? Like all of the process piece of that um, is a part of folklore to me. That was kind of a ramble. But anyway, it's yeah. <laughs> a lot of bits in there. Just choose your favorite. <laughs> it's a very good ramble. And yeah. <laughs> I, it's one of the things that I teach in my intro folklore courses on the very first day I put on the board, you know, what is folklore? And my students will say things like mm-hmm. a guy playing a banjo or a potter or, you know, yep. A fairy tale and then we do the same thing at the end of the semester and it's like mm-hmm. a completely different set of responses yep. that they give and what I always think about and, and what comes up as you're talking is this idea that folklore teaches you in many ways to question everything and it's a running joke that amongst my department here that I am both somebody who loves folklore deeply and is also incredibly critical of the field specifically the problems it has created in rural studies and southern studies that you have lots of academic fo- I mean the origins of folklore are kind of urban folklorists going out into rural places, cataloging people's stories, presenting them back to the masses. Or worse. Yeah, or worse. <laughs> or worse. <laughs> yeah. Or worse, for sure. Um, yeah. But then saying, you know, this is the folk, and there's a big distinction between the idea of the folk and us. And I even think in the field of academic folklore, you see this play out many, many times over the years where you have, you know, academic folklorists who want to work with the folk and they want to study the folk, but they don't consider themselves the folk. And so the idea for good folk in many mm-hmm. ways came out of sort of a reclamation of that term um, and the way it gets weaponized against rural and Southern communities to say, not only are there good people here, but there are also good folk here. So I'm thinking about kind of the field of folklore being both a really incredible space to explore a lot of these questions, but also a field that 
has created many of the problems that we are now attempting to solve. And I would love to hear more about your own work that you do in folklore, which is super varied and interesting. And I imagine probably not what people think of when they think of the traditional field of folklore. (laughs) Um, But many young folklorists, I find the people who I'm interacting with kind of coming up in the field are questioning everything, including the field and being willing to challenge that in ways that I think are really, really incredible. Yeah. And in really, really smart and just passionate and and ways that care for the field at the same time of the criticism. I mean, that's all you could hope for is that people are, you know, critiquing with love and care and passion, not because they're haters or <laughs> I feel like everybody thinks that criticism comes from haters. No, sometimes it comes from the people that you care about the most and that care about you the most. I mean, I don't know. Um okay, so you asked me about stuff that I do, my work. Okay, so there's like my dissertation work, there's jobs I have <laughs> and then there's like fun wacky shit I do isn't so, that the description of um, every artist that's everyone we have on this podcast <laughs> it's like here's the thing I do at 8 a.m and I'll do that all day and then here's the things I go yeah. and do when I'm off the clock and yeah one day maybe this will be yeah. our paid positions on the clock but yeah give us the rundown of everything yeah, I mean, we can push. okay So I'm a current PhD student in the comparative studies program at Ohio State University. And most people are like, what's comparative studies? Well, let me tell you, (laughs) comparative studies is really cool. I define it as like a, a group of interdisciplinary thinkers who are interested in the question about how we make knowledge. So they're like, what is knowledge? Where does it come from? How do we get, how do we make it? And then how do we transmit it? So I have a master's degree in folklore from Utah State University and a BA in folklore from um, from University of Oregon. And in both of those, like setting me up to answer this question, I'm really interested in how local knowledge is created and shared. So the stuff that happens on like this everyday, like micro level, like how am I, how is my body communicating something to you? <laughs> um, how are my actions communicating something to you intentionally or not intentionally, or sort of in this kind of, um, I don't know, like philosophical way of like, how were we, how does relationality connect to knowledge production? How intentional does it need to be for somebody to learn something? What do we count as knowledge? All of these questions. So in my dissertation research, that looks like um, me asking a question about what does it mean to be in community in the middle of ecological collapse (laughs) because traditionally community as it pertains to some folklore scholars amongst other humanities scholars in general is usually a people a human focused question it's usually who is community who counts within that community and who doesn't count within that community and this can be like um you know just practical or it could be malicious right so like it could be practical like when you're designing a research project you need to choose a number of people <laughs> to interview. That does mean a lot of people get excluded, right? How does that process happen? Why, what criteria are you including or excluding? And for what purpose would that design um, be necessary to answer the research question that you have in the first place? So this is when I started getting really interested in research design. So folklorists in general, when they do research projects, they often say that they practice ethnography, which is like writing about people in short and in more depth. It's like 
uh, writing as much detail, experience, uh, putting as much energy into the written word as possible to create a holistic picture of the event, subject, or data, for lack of a better term, that you are looking to help answer your research question. So this could be like photography, it could be video, it could be interviews, it could be just descriptive writing and field notes, it can be lots of these things. Most folklorists are trained in that. But another, the other thing that ethnography does is it, it tries to prioritize the person that you're learning from or the community that you're learning from uh, in the research in a way that most other traditional methods of research don't. Or rather, it's speaking against both a, um, a history within the discipline and beyond disciplines of decentering the person <laughs> um, from the data, which happens a lot in like... Um, medical fields, for example, doing like mega studies. And there's lots of examples of you uh, that you can point to of, of harmful practices uh, of research um, that have done a lot of damage to different communities in different ways, um, whether uh, physically, racially, economically, like, I don't know, you can kind of go on a list there. So ethnography is an attempt to undo some of that damage by prioritizing reflexivity on yourself as a researcher and the work that you're doing and thinking about how the whole person is being represented in the work that you do. So a question that I ask a lot when I write is like, how will my research be weaponized? So who am I writing about? What am I writing about? And how could someone use the data that I've created, gathered, written about, whatever it is, and take that to a context that could do something else? So that's a question that I that I think about a lot in terms of my research. And then on this other side, there's this like human centricity to a lot of the work that we do, which is not... Um, which is a Western sort of method of scientific inquiry. Like, what does it matter to people? Um, what does this matter? What does this do for us? What is the usefulness? What is the purpose? What is all of these things that are motivated by money, capitalism, blah, blah, blah. These like larger kind of philosophical inclinations to individualism, to understanding the world by virtue of wanting to conquer it. <laughs> we know the most, therefore we are exceptional, right? So that it gets into like human exceptionalism. The thing I think is cool about folklore and why I like that this like philosophy in a, or, or I don't know, disciplinary practice in a, the context of comparative studies about answering questions about knowledge is that it, it says like, no, everyone has knowledge inherently. And all of that knowledge is important. Um, there's not necessarily a value system in place uh in terms of what should and shouldn't be studied in theory <laughs> um in practice it's a little different um especially traditionally in the field um haha to use tradition in a different way but um there's there's a it has space for asking questions about what it means to be part of community that is beyond human as well. So what contributions make it possible for us to have the traditions that we have? And I think that this is what started getting pointing me towards land and the environment as an important element of that, because there are, for example, so many showcases of the multiplicity of, of folkloric experience on a national or local level. You can think about the folk festivals that happen or just like the Smithsonian Folk Festival that happens annually on the, you know, the Washington lawn or whatever. And I think so much about how the land and the space and the design of that space makes possible that showcase in the first place. So that's like one level. 
is that folklorists use land and they use space to showcase, exhibit, connect with, bring people together, and then don't honor that land at the same time necessarily, or include it as part of uh, the research design in the first place. Um, I think about this a lot with like zero waste, you know, like how much waste is produced at these different events. I know there's lots of people who think about this. Um, but those are questions I'm also interested in. And then there's this other level of like, um, you know, all, uh, there's more and and has always been like indigenous peoples have always known this. Um, this is also not like a new thing that I'm saying, but to say like the the beings that are involved in making accessible the items that we use to communicate creatively and aesthetically with each other don't always come from human bodies. <laughs> Sometimes they come from non-human animals. They come from the land. They come from plants. They come from mushrooms. They come from all of these other things. So what would it mean for folklorists to imagine a future that does some kind of justice or incorporation in research the role that these beings play in our ability to creatively communicate so that's like one another level and then an even deeper level is are they doing folklore in their own ways themselves and i mean that's a very it's a very like um you know, academic Western kind of idea to frame it in a folklore context, because that's language and terminology that is being used by the, the academy, basically, to talk about this. But really, what I'm getting at is how and what are these communities of non-humans doing, communicating with each other in these creative ways that humans have no access to? And how do we make sure that they can keep doing it in a way that is possible for their own futures in the face of the climate collapse. You know, like there's some knowledge I don't think that we need to have. Like, I don't think that people have a right to know everything, but know that there are things that are happening and let those things happen as particularly if we're talking about non-human beings. Like, I don't know the nuances of bird songs. That's not my area. Ask an ornithologist. But the fact that we're losing so many birds is makes that creative communication that might be happening no longer possible. So I think all of those questions are really important um, to ask as we, I don't know, sort of delve into the the depths of what maybe a rapidly changing ecological future for us. So that's where I think folklore matters. It's the stuff that happens every day. It's the birds in your neighborhood talking to each other as much as it is you talking to your ancestors, you know. Um, it's all of it. And I think it all fascinates me around this question of like, what is community? So that was my dissertation. <laughs> um, and so I'm doing, I'm answering those, I'm answering those questions in a couple different ways. There's like a case study. There's two pieces that I'm writing like some theory about, like how we can think of this as like structurally or philosophically as a field. So I'm like kind of speaking to my field. And then there's another section that's like, how would I imagine doing this in like a pedagogical context? Like, how do you teach with a mindset of including more than human communities in the, in the scholarship that you do as a folklorist or as any person, you know, like, what do you think? Um, I want to read your dissertation. Yeah. I have to say, because <laughs> it's not written when it's done, <laughs> but I'll when send it's it done, you. it'll time out so well when I'm writing my dissertation to just cite you left and right, because I'm asking so many of the similar questions. Um, and then I'm thinking about it very specifically in kind of the stigmatization of rural and Southern communities, which are, I mean, the South is unequivocally set to face the highest rates of climate change. Nobody talks about that. Um, everybody talks about, you know, like Florida, which is contentious in terms of Southern studies. I think Florida is part of the mm -hmm, South, mm -hmm. but people disagree with that. Yeah. Or we talk about California. Mm -hmm. We talk about New York City. Um, I'm working mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. much right now in Beaufort County, South Carolina, which is ranked the highest county set or the number one county in America set to experience the worst effects of climate change. There's 3,143 total counties, but 
nobody is talking about Beaufort County and that data, which is public online, is not known by people in the community itself. So one thing I'm thinking about a lot with community and ecological crisis is how do you build community um, both with the land, you know, with water and flood water specifically, it's like we're not getting rid of it. So how do we learn to live in community with water being one question, but then also how do we live in communities that are being stigmatized by people outside the region, right? So we might have our own community, but if everyone else is placing a different definition of community onto us, what does that mean? And then, yeah, within that, there's there's so many questions about like apocalypse and disaster and the way in which mm-hmm. academic fields have stigmatized a lot of climate work is like, let's think about it post-disaster and not think about it in terms of resilience. And so everything you're saying in terms of how do we build community there was a New York Times piece that came out like, I don't know, seven years ago that I remember reading. It was like how to build community at the end of, or how to find community at the end of the world. And they were um, following a survivalist community in, in Oregon. But I think about that question a lot of like, what does it look like to build community at the quote unquote end of the world? And within that, then how can we use communal structures and imaginary capacities to reimagine those endings as, you know, they might be like endings for humans, but that can be a different story. My specific fascination has been in Loblolly Pines. Anybody who listens to this podcast will have heard me ramble on and on and on about Loblolly Pines. I'm working on a novel about it. It's a whole thing. I'm trying to write about like, I'm trying to write from the perspective of a Loblolly Pine. It's it's challenging and difficult, but yeah, but there's lots of other examples with that of um, adaptation and resilience instead of kind of destruction and apocalypse. And what can we do as folklorists and people you know, I think the job of a folklorist is in many ways to also just be a community liaison. So building community yeah. and identifying that. And that's, that's a huge part of my sure. work, but yeah. One, yeah. One of, if, you know, if I can tell anything to like any intro to folklore student, <laughs> it's like, listen, who's thinking about like, what the hell does a folklorist do though? <laughs> um, they're networkers. Like there's folklorists are so good at being a translator like across different scales across different communities and at least that's what I like to imagine is like you can notice and pick up on stuff that is meaningful to people in an everyday way that if you weren't immersed in that community you might not notice that fast because you're not part of the community so folklorists are pretty good at just like kind of like what I was saying earlier with lichen like the the choice of language like you might be like a cool liberal who's into like environmental activism and is just making producing pamphlets for your neighborhood that's all about the climate crisis and you live in the middle of kentucky and everyone's like what the fuck is this loony doing you know like they're not you know because that's not how you relate to that community you're doing something that is like not listening to the community even though you may be part of the community there are things there are many parts of all of our own communities that we don't understand and don't have access to and that you can only understand through deep listening and shared time and sharing space so even if you think talking about the climate crisis as such is the best way to get people activated you may be mistaken because you haven't listened to the people who are necessarily being affected by it or by the people that you might actually want to be communicating to the most um which are the people who like just straight up don't think it's real so you have to just pay attention to like how people are talking and who you're talking to and why you're talking to them and do they want you to be talking to them like all of those questions are important for for creating community as much as just studying it you know yeah if you had to give people like what you think is probably the most important first step towards creating community structures what would you say it is oh my god towards creating community yeah or towards connecting it it could go either way i think which is like connecting just like like um how like 
for the lonely people out there who are like, what's community? Yeah, I'll give an example. We joke Um, on this podcast. This was started because Vic and I were like, we are artists in rural Southern spaces. And we know there are other artists in rural Southern spaces, but we are not coming across them in our day-to-day lives. So where are they and how can we find them? Um, and this was this is one way that we we sought to do that, but there are obviously plenty of other ways. It's a great way. It's a great way. <laughs> it's worth social media. Far, of all you know? <laughs> social media of all capacities is a great way. Um, and that's one thing I like to tell, especially like older folklorists too, or people who are like less interested in the internet, is like it's the same thing that happened always. It's just like way faster. It's the same folklore that's always been happening. It's just way faster and you got it and it's hard to keep up with. And I totally respect that it's hard to keep up with. Um, I, I don't even think that I keep up with it well and I have a Twitch show. So <laughs> like, I don't know. But um, I think maybe maybe like a, if you're thinking about community, I think people get really wrapped up in the self okay maybe this is getting like a little bit more (laughs) this is getting like too philosophical about it but i think so many people get like wrapped up in how they're going to be perceived who is going to give a shit about them where what are they adding to the community are they well read enough are they listening well enough all of these like internal like kind of criticisms that we we get trained into in a good way in many instances it's kind of like reflection about it but i do think at a certain point people get too caught up in um not self-reflection but rather the self-servingness that a com- that they want from a community they want to feel like they belong rather than make someone else feel like they belong and i think maybe shifting the perspective uh from how do I feel belonging to damn, does that person have a friend (laughs) maybe is a way we can start to like move past that. I feel like that gives you way more access to not just to people, but like to that sense of you get it back. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you're putting the care into other people, the way that you want to be cared for, it comes, it comes back to you. And if it's not coming back to you in that way, you're not, putting the energy into the right people, (laughs) you know, like, don't, don't make it about like, how am I receiving energy? Am am I getting what I need out of this? Like, those are good questions. But I think to build community or to connect to communities is to find first, like, that moment of, wow, other people I see could real, I'm into art and other people are into art. How do I facilitate a space for us to talk about art or whatever, rather than saying like, pick me, pick me, like somebody, you know, bring me in, make the space, like make it for, let bring people in because you notice the gap or whatever. Um, I don't know if that's like exactly it, but that's what I'm feeling right now. So (laughs) I completely agree with that. And I think one thing I always want to emphasize when we talk about community on this show is that it also doesn't happen overnight either. Like I think, especially with social media, we have such a perspective now that it's like, I'm going to find my community on an internet platform and it's just going to suddenly be right and be perfect. Or like for me, it was- And they're going to want me. (laughs) That's the other thing. Like a lot of people don't want you. (laughs) I cannot tell you the amount of artists. Yeah. I have met so many people that I thought were really cool and I was like, I want to be their friend. And you know, it just doesn't happen. And and that's totally okay. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Um, And I think, especially when it comes to like place-based community too, I know I- have lived in places where I thought I would fit in and I got there and I was like, this isn't for me. And then I will fantasize about another place and be like, I will just go there and everything will fall into place. And it's like, even in the places that I know 
feel like home, it still doesn't happen overnight. You know, it took a good three years to build community back here, even in North Carolina. And so I think that's, it's a, it's a frustrating thing to hear when you are kind of the lonely person sitting alone on your computer being like, how do I make community? How do I find community? Um, But it is, it takes time as well. I think it takes time and, and a lot of openness, just a lot of like, wait and see what happens. You know, like there's, if you have an idea of what it's supposed to look like, you're probably doing it wrong (laughs) because it'll end up like blossoming into something you never thought it would look like on accident or whatever, you know, like you just made a platform available to people and just kind of following where it led and where it led is usually where it's needed, you know, or what, you know, the, at least if you're being reflective about it, it usually ends up in the spaces that it, there's a gap you know so it's kind of like you already end up doing it on accident if you are patient and you're listening and you're thinking about other people first in some ways but so you're also both an environmentalist and a mycologist do you feel or what have you learned about community from kind of the intersection of these fields oh my gosh um i mean maybe i'm kind of i was kind of saying it like a metaphorical sense but like mycelium so mycelium is not um so mushrooms right so we think of mushrooms we think of like fungus there's millions of different kinds (laughs) when we think about mushrooms as a subcategory of fungus um most of the mushroom activity is happening underground and most most of it's it's all it's always alive and it's always happening underground where you might think like a mushroom that like little thing that you see on the surface that's just the fruiting body i describe it as like and it's the apple of the apple tree. The apple tree part is just underground and the apple is above, basically, um, for lack of better comparison to plant life, whatever. But basically the mushroom on top is just the like one little like uh, sexual reproduction element of the mycelium that happens infrequently compared to all of the like depth of the structure that's happening underground that's doing a lot of the decomposing and the heavy lifting work of um moving nutrients from one form into another form so when i think a lot about community and how it relates to mycelium i mean many people not unlike lichen l-i-k-e-n is their acronym livelihoods knowledge exchange network but is in um obviously a reference to lichen l-i-c-h-e-n um the mix between an alga and um a fungus which is lichen that you see like on trees and stuff um it's actually two organisms that are working together in a kind of semi-symbiotic way to basically turn light energy into food um so mushrooms in general um the mycelial network that is the whole mushroom species not just the fruiting body but the whole the whole being um they move they they move where nutrients are and they support the parts that are getting less access to that nutrient they do a really good job at redistribution and i guess i'm thinking a lot about when i think about community i not only think of like networking across spaces because mycelium can get really really big underground and it can be between different kinds of trees and different plants and different microbes and and creatures underground and at the whole time it's sort of like doing this sort of chamber of communications about like oh i'm getting eaten over here and i'm finding nitrogen over here and i'm you know i found a carcass over here everybody let's go and they're kind of all moving at the same time in this sort of um I don't know, like it's semi-electrical network of care (laughs) in some ways where they're trying to make sure that the entire organism receives the care that it needs in any given moment, whether that's like 
finding lots of nutrients and putting them, redistributing them to the other parts that need healing, or it's just seeking out an area, finding stuff that didn't work and you dried out because oops, the rain or whatever, you know, like they're all kind of at the same time trying to do the work of care for this like large system that is at the same time through their caring for themselves are caring for the entire ecosystem by also attaching themselves to plants and they're fixing nitrogen for different plants or they're they're doing other kinds of things that help the different species that they interact with that all pertains to their particular locality. So, um, in all of those different ways, I guess when I think about community, I think of networking. Um, so how are we bringing people across spaces to be able to access different energies and nutrients that we don't always get access to, um, or that we have some kind of deficiency or lack of access to? And then how are we doing a good job at redistributing those finite resources or potentially finite resources? Or we, what we've been told are finite resources that actually aren't right. So like getting to the the kind of crux of that, how do we care in a way that does service to everybody who's involved? And that's a huge daunting question. One person can't do it, right? That's we're all in kind of this like enmeshed network with everybody and every being that we are around. Like I wouldn't be able to sit here today if I didn't take care of my gut biome by eating food, you know, and like all of the things that went into creating that food nutritional or not. I had some Cheerios earlier, probably not the best <laughs> midday snack, but it helped me get here, you know, but there are other things too, like, um, you know, be like actually putting energy into my yard and like gardening, um, you know, in the many different ways, like by planting native plants, I'm making my air cleaner in my backyard for me, but also for my roommates and for the neighborhood and for all the squirrels that are feeding off of my vegetable garden or whatever, you know, and like you, I guess you have to see these sort of networks as all interconnected. Like if I didn't have access to food, I would not have the brain capacity that I do to be able to do this kind of work where then I get to connect with all of you. So like all of these are part of this like huge network structure of building towards and redistributing nutrients so that way we can all feel better. We can all get to the point where we can be machine, I don't, machines is maybe the wrong word, but be sort of like entities that are constantly be mushrooms, I guess, giving them the things back that we create, you know, and kind of just like in the cyclical nature of us on our blip in time and earth, you know, as part of seeing ourselves less as individuals and more as a kind of collective movement towards shape, towards a value system that supports redistributing uh, important nutrients and, and giving gratitude to the land for giving us things that give us life, you know. It's all part of this like cycle the earth will thank us eventually when we die you know we go back to it i mean it not to be morbid but like just it's true we decompose as much as we create or at least some people now are really really maybe for a long time have been really really tipping the scale on their uh <laughs> giving back to earth but um you know what i mean i think that there's some kind of element there i don't know i'm kind of rambling now i, I don't necessarily think that things should be rebalanced. Like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but in terms of like community, like just paying attention to where energy is put and who's putting that energy there and what kind of energy do you need and what kind of energy can you give? And that those are not always consistent <laughs> and that that's important to notice, you know, it's not consistent for any community. I think what you're describing with kind of collective vision and also circularity it's so good and so important. I'm thinking about it as, you know, we're coming to this podcast from two very polarized states, which are North Carolina and Ohio. And so much of the work I feel like I'm doing on the ground is always trying to figure out how do we 
create collective vision in places where it is that deeply polarized or where, you know, I was writing about this in the newsletter this past week, but it's like right now in America, it feels like everyone is convinced that they are fighting for the right thing. And there are two very different narratives of what that right thing is. And so how do you, how do you get at a collective vision that unites both of those? Or what does it look like to, you know, inspire community and collective care, even if people are in ideological disagreement? Um, I don't know if you, uh, ways that you might've seen that play out both in kind of the work you've done in Appalachia or also even in Ohio where, where you are now. It's a tough question. <laughs> this is a tough question. Yeah. I, and it's one I think about a lot. I don't feel like I have a good answer to. I think there's a lot of very important people that have way better answers than I'll give. But um, something I think a lot about, especially as like a, you know, like a white trans person um, is that you can only do what you can do. <laughs> and what I, what I mean by that is that lead by example, just do the, do what you can that you think is right that you are backed by your personal values that you say like, this is, I think the way to do it and lead the project or be part of the project that is in line with the way that you want to live and be in the world. I think a lot of people, especially folklorists, environmentalists, people who are concerned about the planet, <laughs> their people, the community, whatever, you know, like people who like get really riled up about this stuff I totally have a right to feel that way and to be engaging in the world from from this kind of like standpoint of, of that. But I guess my caution is don't turn that into this is a problem about the behavior of others. I mean, you can be critical of other people's behavior, obviously. But what you but you I don't know Bill I don't know Bill Gates, I don't know Jeff Bezos, right? Like I, okay, yeah, that would be great. I could talk about the harm that these giant mega corporations do to us all the time and that's great and that's important to talk about. But it effectually like I I'm not talking to that person. Like I don't have that kind of power. But the power I do have is to lead by example. And so some of those examples could be writing about the things that you want to write about talking to the people that are really really support their work that they do telling them that you support the work that they do like giving them the energy that they've given you accidentally through their scholarship through their community leadership through whatever it is um and then so like i guess i guess there's like sort of two levels so there's one is like have gratitude and like actually make actionable that gratitude but literally like people love getting emails that are like your book changed my life that's all you have to say you don't even need to like you don't need to say anymore it doesn't need to be a whole conversation but like those things do matter to people or like saying like hey i you know cited your thing in my paper people love that you know like they just everybody thinks that nobody reads their stuff nobody is engaging with it and that they don't affect anybody but themselves that's wrong <laughs> you actually do affect way more people than you could ever know and it's not entirely in your control so all you can do is you know like people are gonna think different things about you like i i imagine all the times the way that people imagine who i am that's very different than what I, my experience of being me is, which is sometimes super fucking depressed or sometimes like can't get out of bed for a week and people are like, but you do all this shit. And it's like, I don't know, that's just life. People, you know, people have ups and downs and they move in different ways and like everybody's a whole complex person. But the person that people imagine me as is different than who Daisy is and all of these different things, right? So all you can do is lead by example, 
in the ways that you feel like are the ways that you want to be in the world listen to people who question you but don't give up your core values and people tend to follow you more people tend to listen more and people tend to appreciate your openness to letting them also on their own terms be that person um that's kind of like my general like take for particularly contentious conversations activities interactions with people that you may have wildly disagreeing opinions with um there's lots of times and places and other tactics to do but in terms of me just like effectually as a person in the world or you as effectually a person and people in the world like all you can do is do you <laughs> and if you who that person is is backed by values that you care deeply about you listen to other people and you change based on new information there's nothing else you can do you can't you have no responsibility to other people's behavior you know they have to be responsible for themselves so if you lead by that example and that example might be environmental conservation it might be like i'm gonna turn my entire yard into pro public property i had a professor in um at University of Oregon, who was a landscape architecture professor, his name was Whitey Lewick, and he turned his suburban home into just public access environmental education. So you could walk under his yard, there was a pathway to follow, where it was like a third riparian woodland, a third for food and sustainability, and then a third for education. That was how he like divvied it up. Um, and he just was like the only guy in the neighborhood to do this. He got rid of the driveway. He made it all like an educational space. He got grants to do it because it's an educational project. There are ways that you can do these things by just leading by being the example of the person you want to be, you know, um, and you can do it a lot, I think, more environmentally than, you know, stop. St I guess what I'm trying to say is stop like tagging people that can't be vegan. You know, it's like that's not the point. The point is to lead by example. Like the point is not to tell people what they can and can't do. Right. Um, I say that as a vegan point, <laughs> you know, it's not to tell people like you can and can't do shit like, or that you should be doing this to be environmentally friendly, or you should be doing this. Like you have no idea what access needs these people have to, to keep their communities going. But if people ask you and you, they want to have a conversation with you, you just tell them who you are and how you lead your life. I don't know. That was kind of a long winded answer too. But No, anyway. it's a great answer. I think it, it actually goes all the way back to kind of what we began with talking about, which is, living with a folklore perspective, um, which to me is kind of this idea of, you know, listen to everything. Don't immediately assume you're going to disagree with someone or that you won't get a value out of having a conversation with someone you disagree with. Question everything, you know, never accept the first story or the easy story that's presented to you, but also do all of this with respect for community and love and care within that. Um, and I think it's, it's why so many of us are drawn to the field of folklore. Like, I think we do have this vision for a world that we want to get to and in many ways, you know, I did not study folklore as an undergrad. I come at folklore from um, English and human rights and creative writing, but realizing, you know, what is the field that is offering pathways to imagine these new worlds and create them in community? And it's not perfect. No, I mean, nothing's perfect. But I do think that teaching people how to approach the world through that perspective um, and also do that with your own individual belief systems. I think I, I want to emphasize that because I think it's really important what you're saying that you, know, you have to be able to trust your gut. There's, um, not to quote Thoreau, but there's a great Thoreau quote of know your own bone that I, I think about all the time in my head that you have to know, it's part of my whole thing with pine trees, but you know, know where you stand, but also don't be so rooted in it that you can't be moved. Um, the pine tree example is like, be rooted in who you are, but be able to sway in the wind. It's my life motto. It's my interest in pine trees. I have a tattoo of it, but like truly it is, 
it is a great way to think about um, both the humanities approach to the world, but also an individual approach, but an individual approach that's not getting so lost in like American individualism that we can't build community out of it. You know, be rooted in who you are and what you believe, but be aware to stand amongst other people. Yeah. And be aware of what those beliefs are in context. Yeah. Like, what does that mean in context? You know, um, we see that I feel like playing out so much with like, I mean, the the far left online and, and like liberal communities that I just see so many things all the time that drive me crazy because I'm like, yeah, that might work in Boston. But when you're posting about it like that, I mean, we get in these echo chambers and it's like it can be it can feel very frustrating to be working in like southern or rural activism or organizing when you feel like the people who you are even in in agreement with belief wise, like the context isn't there. So then it's like, how do you build context and community? I don't have answers to that. Folklorists but. love context. That's the other thing. Folklorists are very <laughs> yes, good at context. <laughs> so that's a, that's another thing. Folklorists are really good at context. And what I mean by, or what I think we mean by context um, is just knowing all of the things around the thing that make it possible. So um, it's not the thing itself. It's all of the stuff that led to the history of that thing being possible in the first place. Um whether that's like other influences in the community, something historical that happened, something that, I don't know, something that other people did before you that you just don't know about. Like you need to know all of that stuff to be, to really understand what a thing is, you know, all of the stuff that made it, which is part of that collective. Like there's nothing that is made in isolation, you know, Um, there's no idea that exists in isolation and there's no being that exists in isolation. I mean, even if you are isolated, even if you are a hermit, you were born <laughs> you know like there's you are in a, you are always in community especially when you think about it community in this expanded non-human or or, or human ex- only kind of way human exceptional kind of way where like you're something is feeding you right you have to those are beings that contribute to how you understand and connect to and can be in the world and sometimes they can do harm to you um and sometimes they really help you you know i think about um uh Oh my god why is the term escape what is the name for the that you get from ticks why am i thinking of lyme disease it's like lyme disease is a good example of this sorry cut that part <laughs> lyme disease is a good example of this where it's like um you know it's a it's a thing that it becomes part of your body that is part of just being a laborer outside you're outside all the time you're in the woods you're, you're a farmer or whatever and a lot of people get lyme disease and that doesn't mean that it's like a piece of something that adds to who you are and your experience of the world that is both culturally contextual as much as it is ecologically contextual. And like all of these are kind of embedded in, a, in inseparable ways and you need to know all of them to understand what a person's experience like going to a doctor with Lyme disease is. You know, like you can't just imagine that it's like person Lyme disease look no like it's this whole it's the whole piece of the puzzle it's all of the little things that come together to kind of create presence you in that moment you know um you said something else earlier that was making me think of something oh I maybe it was maybe it was about quotes I don't remember but there's um and trust and community a little bit though the tattoo I want to get <laughs> that is a motto <laughs> for my life <laughs> is um, two wonderful, amazing activists, uh, Adrian Murray Brown and Moya Bailey. I don't know if you know, I, maybe you're nodding heads. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful people, emergent strategy. Um, 
it is something such that, a good book <laughs> oh my god it's like it's a dream it's a dream text truly um for especially for fungal scholars <laughs> like myself um at least for anyone thinking about visionaries yeah and community and collapse like yeah please read emergent strategy yeah read yeah. Emergent strategy but um moya bailey said uh at, at some in one of uh their pieces um move at the speed of trust and I think about that all the time for folklorists and I speak to that from a context of being like a white socialized person where I'm always like fast and I want to like get shit done and I'm like let's go let's go and some of that's been really helpful for me advantageously because we have as a culture a society that supports those kinds of sort of like unconscious cultural moments of whiteness or well, I don't know whatever you want to call them but like this kind of like moving fast getting it done like let's go I'm gonna just like you know here it is let's make a meeting tomorrow like some of that is not the way that other communities move and they can move a lot slower and that when you're thinking about trust in the context of all different kinds of communities that that needs to be on the terms of trust which is not always fast sometimes it's fast sometimes it's not <laughs> and you need to be aware of what the pace of trust is in those contexts and try to like think and slow down and like trust happens through a deep shared time or a sort of sense of knowing even before you've actually met like part of building trust is that you and i both googled each other before this right like you, you I, so i'm sure that people sleuth i'm and this is no surprise like you get sleuthed all the time we do this to people we know all the time. this is a folklore practice of sleuthing <laughs> of lurking <laughs> on the internet where you like look up your friends like partner and you're like i'm gonna make sure that partner doesn't suck <laughs> right like all of that and you've never met them before like all of those little things are part of building trust before you even know the person so it's like you are anticipatory or like you're anticipating a kind of relationship based on all this other information that you're gathering all the time which is all community generated knowledge or that they're generating but they're also generating in context i don't know i could kind of like go on and on and on about it but like all of like the trust doesn't start at your first meeting it starts way before and that it's slow over time and that um the way that you respond it to that through listening through whatever i feel like folklorists have training in that maybe not as explicitly as i just put it but that's something i think that's valuable about the folkloric perspective is that because we listen to communities and we do research with communities sometimes it takes a really really long time before you figure out that the person you actually want to talk to has been watching you for two years talk to everybody else before they feel like they can trust you to talk you know like all of that stuff is so important and it's just not just important for research it's important for being a person you know and i wish that like that more people understood I agree with that completely. And it's kind of why I wanted to start this podcast oh by God. asking you what you're obsessed by, because I also think oh, it's yeah. like the element of lurking will tell you quite a bit about a person. And someone asked me that question once and I've loved it ever since. But I think if you're getting anything out of this podcast, it should it should be a reminder that, you know, lurk and question and approach the world from a yeah. folklore perspective, which if you've made it this far, you've basically just gotten a crash. I mean, I hope so. Folklore <laughs> I know you thought and, we were going to you know, talk well, about fairies, but I, I think between <laughs> <Yeah>. us. <laughs> This is how it goes when you take a folklore class. You come in and you think you're going to talk about fairy tales, and the next thing you know, we're like, honestly, Beyonce's truly, 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 truly. Or you're thinking like, um, you know, the shit that like your parents tell you all the time. You never even thought was you know useful, or you just thought that was like what parents say. It's not what parents say. It's what your parents say, and it's how you've internalized it or not or whatever. You know, like it's all these things that you didn't think were 
that special or maybe they are special maybe they're not special and you're like why the hell are we doing this and like folklore can help you with some of those questions of like why are why the hell are you doing it you know let's figure it out you know and I hope now that if you're listening, you are maybe starting yeah. to question some of those things, mm-hmm. but there's obviously oh gosh, plenty yeah. more that we could unpack and there is, yeah, we, we'll have to do a follow-up episode oh my God. and actually write your cool. dissertation and oh, come back because I, I want to hear all about it. I have an idea. I have a book idea you're going to love. I'm not going to share it because I, well, I'm going to write it, but I'll talk off air. All right. We're going to have to talk off air <laughs> yeah. because oh my, I, oh, I just need your entire late it. review. I'm happy to send it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll team up it'll be great but yeah, yeah. to redirect yeah. it to your individual beliefs and kind of the system of what you are rooted in we always ask our podcast questions one final or our podcast guests one final question and that question for you and you're able to interpret this any way you would like is what do you believe in oh my god um i wrote a paper on that prompt in like high school and my teacher read it to the class i was really proud it's only that's the only paper i ever did like really well on that the teacher like read to the class but i think i wrote the same paper yeah but i've got a much longer nightmarish story oh, about it that does well, not need to be recorded well, I think on at, air i think at the time i think okay so this was like what 10 plus years ago i don't know something like that whatever i'm 28 so it was like something i don't know maybe it was like 12 years ago or something but um at the time i wrote like i don't know what i believe in was sort of the climax it was like me imagining like myself in all of these different books and like falling into different beliefs and then kind of being like i don't i don't know like i don't be surprised if i say something wild because which is funny because now i say weird stuff all the time or things that people think are weird contextually but i actually don't think it's that weird because it's just like who i am i'm just kind of i just kind of have silly little we call it dream brain on folkwise on the podcast one where um i'll just like start going off about i don't know like the metaphor of the eye as represented in bayonetta and it doesn't make any sense but it's funny <laughs> um and uh so i guess like what, I, what do i believe in i believe in i believe that people have more agency than they realize i believe that if you are doing something with your soul in it with your value system clearly defined for yourself in it that you are doing everything you can possibly do on earth i don't know like i don't really believe in like an afterlife necessarily i believe in the fact that we all are just kind of existing here at the same time and the only thing that we can be is us (laughs) and don't let that stop you from making weird art at which i also make all the time (laughs) don't let that stop you from making uh spending time with people that you care about don't let you know like there's lots of things about the world that are going to try to tell you that you can't do things there's access barriers that's all true um and those are real real issues but there are ways around the barriers that people put in front of you in sneaky ways um and that finding people is kind of the only way around it so i believe i guess in community and the the power that friendship can have not to be like (laughs) friendship is magic on main or whatever but like it kind of is like if you you know and all of these access barriers all the things that the society is doing to like hold you back to push you back you may feel like a victim of some of these circumstances and you may feel helpless and you may feel maybe not even like a victim but just like god we live in a horrible time because we do um 
but the only thing that's going to keep you going is like those little moments of joy that you create for yourself in the and with others in the context of having relationships. So I guess I believe in community and your relationships and being able to connect with people in these like super seemingly mundane everyday kind of ways, but they're not, you know, the folklorists understand they're not mundane at all. And they're the thing that make your life. So I guess, yeah, spend, I believe in, in friendship and your community and that that's the thing that keeps you alive. It's none of this other stuff. I mean, maybe it's a little bit your food and things like that, but that's also part of your community. If you see it that way. Um, and that's the only thing that's going to save you from this like hell hole that we live in of s- systemic oppression. <laughs> anyway, there you go. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself and very aligned with our values here. So Daisy, thank you so much for being Thanks here for and for this me. conversation. This I could, I could talk to you for so much longer, but you know, we will find time will. for anyone who wants to find you, follow your work, who wants to just lurk. Where can they find you? Oh my you? God. You can lurk on so many things or you can be involved. There's ways to be involved too. Um, so if you want to lurking can lead to community. Exactly. Exactly. True. So there's some, uh, if you want to do some lurking, um, or some following or whatever, you can follow me on social media. Um, all my handle is the same across platforms. It's Thyla underscore Daisy, T H Y L A underscore Daisy, D A I S Y. Um, that's like on Instagram. I don't really, I'm not really on X that much anymore, but, um, I'm mostly on Instagram, but, uh, you can also follow me on Substack, fellow Substacker, for those Substacker listeners. I have a Substack called Mycolore, M-Y-C-O-L-O-R-E. Um, that's like uh, a place where I put like, I don't know, scholarship and stuff I write that doesn't really go anywhere else. But it's a little bit about, you know, if you listen to me and hear about the stuff I like, a lot of it's like that. A little bit of personal, a little bit of uh, academic, a little bit of just, you know, s- stuff that's up and coming in these days. I also do... Um, I do uh, reviews of the Journal of American Folklore on there too for sort of recent issues. So if you don't want to read the whole thing or if you don't have access to the whole thing, um, I do short reviews of that on there too. You can also find me on Tuesday nights, almost every Tuesday night, except the next two weeks, um, the end of the year. But if you're listening to this at any point after the first week of January, <laughs> um, you can find me on Folkwise, which is uh, on Twitch. So there's twitch.tv slash Folkwise. Um, that is our weekly show where we... Uh, I don't know, study tradition non-traditionally by inviting folklorists across fields, disciplines, people who are thinking about folklore. We have artists and musicians on also. um, And we play a video game with them that's thematically related to their research. And then we interview them for an hour. That's really fun. Um, There's a lot of community involvement in that. You can participate in the chat. And if you ever wanted to like off the cuff, ask a folklorist a question, you could just do that. Tuesday nights from 7 to 11 Eastern um, on twitch.tv slash folkwise. We also have an Instagram on um, also same thing at folkwise. So you can follow us there too. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff. We will link to yeah, all of Yeah, email that. me or whatever. <laughs> I, I love talking to people. If you if you want to know resources, follow Lycan. I, I don't write a lot for them, but on their communications team, they're amazing. Um, you know, like there's all the, especially for your audience, you probably would like the work of Lycan. Um, I'm happy to connect you more deeply with that organization too at any point you too as well but they're you know doing wonderful work in and around the appalachian region but there's also some like disparate communities there's one in california and there's an offshoot in greece too so there's like all these different little networks so we've really beginning to expand so um they're headquartered in kentucky though however but anyway yeah community is everywhere everywhere. and it is growing that's you know that's my favorite thing about being a folklorist i'm no longer afraid to move anywhere because every single state has folklorists 
so it's like I already know so it's like I'm in the dis like I know enough people to be like I'm a folklore I have a friend everywhere it made me so unafraid to to know to go anywhere because I knew I would have community you know so cool what a special feeling and folklore is a small yeah. world. So to anybody listening who's moved somewhere and you want a friend, reach, reach out. out to me, reach yeah. out to Daisy. We can put you in touch with truly, any folklorist truly. anywhere. Well, help you just get settled into place and then leave us. I don't care. You know, <laughs> you need a first friend somewhere, you know, <laughs> like there's, as we always say, there are good folk everywhere, but Daisy, thank, <laughs> thank you. you. And to all of our listeners, wherever you are in the world, have a good day. Good night. Be good. Stay good.